Amen. Well, welcome to Grace Covenant Church. We're going to have our call to worship here in Psalm 150. It's a blessing to uh, gather together today as God's chosen people to worship our Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Amen. Uh, we're so glad to have you today. I uh, have a few announcements before we get started. Um, first, we have our women's Bible study, not this upcoming Saturday, but the following Saturday, August 20th. We really would love for you to join us um, for that. Well, not us as in me, because I won't be there, but we would love for you to join the women for the women's Bible study, which is August 20th. It's at 8 a.m. at Forte Legato, and that is in Rock Hill. Um, also, we are having uh, our redo of our special baptism service uh, that we attempted last week, but due to circumstances, weren't able to do that. And so that's going to be September 4th, same time, same place. We want to invite you to that. There'll be food and fellowship afterwards. Uh, so please make plans to join us uh, for that. Um, also, you'll have a flyer inside of your bulletin for It's Not Over. This is an event that I'll be speaking at uh, around the state tomorrow night uh, in the Greenville area, Thursday in Myrtle Beach, and then Friday here in Rock Hill. And we want you to invite you to that as well. Also, you remember the Christmas song, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. Well, that's our phrase here in our house as fall arrives, because fall is the most wonderful time of year for us in the corral house for many reasons. First, we really love the fall weather and the changing of the seasons, but also we're coming upon uh, the Reformation season, and that's in October. And each year since we've been a church plant, we celebrate the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, the Saturday of Reformation Day. Now, Reformation Day is October 31st, and that is the day that uh, historians have placed where Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the castle of Wittenberg, the Church of Wittenberg, which historians believe sparked and initiated the Protestant Reformation. So we celebrate that. Uh, we don't exalt or idolize uh, the men that God used, the reformers, but we do celebrate the work that God did in rediscovering and bringing the gospel back to light, the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all according to the God, word of God alone, for the glory of Christ, the glory of God alone. So there'll be more details coming forth, but I wanted to go ahead and put that on your calendar since it's just two months away, and it'll be Saturday, October 29th, so we'll have more details forthcoming um, there. Uh, let's see. Oh, I also want to take uh, some time to pray for one of our... Uh, folks here, and that is Michael Gibson. Michael, will you raise your hand so everybody knows who you are? Uh, Michael and Dixie have been coming um, to this church a little over a year, and we've re been really blessed by their presence and getting to know both of them. Uh, Michael is off to college this next week, and so he's going to Charleston Southern University where he's going to play baseball. Uh, I've been able to live through him because I played baseball a lot growing up, as some of you know, uh, so I live vicariously through him. Uh, so but I wanted to pray for him because he's off to school, and I really want y'all to join in with me praying for him. He's going to Charleston Southern. It's a Baptist university. Um, what I've learned and what he'll learn very quickly at Christian universities is that a lot of people know how to speak the Christian language, um, but their life doesn't match their talk. So you know, my encouragement to Michael is to find true believers that, don't, that know more than just how to talk the Christian talk, but how to walk the walk and make sure that you're plugged in with those um, believers and we're going to pray that the Lord would uh, keep your mind sound, uh, keep you strong uh, in the faith, that 
uh, you would not waver, and that you would be a light uh, for those there and the gifts that God has given you uh, through your athletic abilities that you would use it for the glory of God. And so I just wanted to take a moment as you won't be seeing Michael uh, much anymore, except for when he comes back on holidays, hopefully. Uh, but I wanted to ask if you would help me and join and pray for Michael. Amen. So pray with me, please. Uh, Lord God, we thank you so much uh, for uh, the Gibson family, Lord. We thank you for uh, Dixie, who has been faithful in raising her sons in the Lord and has been using the context and the gifts that you've given her to uh, bring her sons to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would be with Michael, Lord, as he prepares for the next chapter of his life. Father, I pray by your grace that you would keep him covered by your wisdom, by your Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, I pray that he would be connected with like-minded believers. Father, who would help hold him accountable uh, to walking in purity and holiness. And Father, I pray that you would glorify your son through his life in this next chapter of his life. And God, I pray that uh, you would help grow him in the faith. Father, I pray that he would be a good influence for the gospel uh, down there in Charleston. God, I pray that he would not be negatively influenced, God, by those who claim the name of Christ, uh, but live like the rest of the world that live in sin. Uh, Father, I pray that you would keep him safe from those and that uh, you would allow him, Father, to grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would use uh, his time there, Father, to hone his skills, both physically and mentally, Father, so that he could prepare for life. He could prepare uh, to raise a family someday. And Father, that he would do all things, God, in his life to glorify the name of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would protect him physically. Uh, Father, we pray that um, he would not be negative influenced by the wokeness that is infiltrating, Father, many universities, even Christian universities, uh, but God, that you would keep him uh, firm in the faith, we pray. And God is Dixie prepares for this next chapter of her life and her youngest off to school. Lord, I pray that you would be with her and cover her in your love and grace. Uh, and Lord, we thank you for bringing them here to our church, and we pray that you would bless them, keep them, preserve them. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, we expect to hear from you often, uh, weekends and holidays. You know, I went to school in Charleston, and I found myself coming back every weekend, so I'm just saying. I know you'll be busy enough, you'll have stuff down there, but uh, please continue to pray for Michael as he goes off to school. Um, even, like I said, Christian universities, there's just so much errant theology uh, in these places, so um, at least uh, it's nice that you have a mom, so if you're ever confused, she knows a lot, and all you have to do is call her up, I know you know that. Hey mom, they're saying this, and nope, it's not what the Word of God says, amen? All right. Psalm 150, for our call to worship, I'm going to read the first six verses, which is the whole psalm. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his mighty deeds. 
Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with string instruments and pipe. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather together in your name, Lord. I pray that you would grant us a heart to praise you, to thank you, that we would pour out our our love for you today, God, and that you would be honored with our worship, God, in the singing and the reading of your holy word and the preaching of scripture. We pray, God, that you would conform us to the image of your son. Christ would be glorified in this place, we pray today. In Jesus' name, amen. Good afternoon. If you'll take your hymns of grace hymnal and turn to 129. We're going to sing that glorious hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns. Let's all stand together as we worship. Crown Him with many crowns, the Lamb upon His throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of Him who died for The Son of God before the worlds began, and ye who tread where he hath trod, crown him the Son of Man, who every grief hath known that rings the bears them for his own that all in him may rest crown him the lord of love behold his hands and sigh those wounds yet visible above in beauty glory in the sky can fully bear that sigh but downward bends his wandering eye at mystery so bright crown him the lord of life who triumph o'er the Who died and rose on high. 
bring and lives that death may die. <clears throat> Crown him the Lord of Lords, who over all doth reign, who was on earth the incarnate word for ransom sinners slain now lives in realms of light where saints with angels sing their songs before him day and night their God Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading will be Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We'll read the rest of the chapter, starting at verse 15. And the word of the Lord says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it, sought for it with tears. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them, for they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and the myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who, uh, who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turned away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. We come to our catechism time. You, see, you should see inside of your um, bulletin. Our catechism, as we go through the Baptist catechism, we're coming up to the last couple of sections on salvation before 
the catechism goes into the section on uh, the moral law and God's duty before man. And the last three questions, preceding three questions, defined great doctrinal truths like justification, what that is, what adoption is, and what sanctification is. Then these question, this question uh, today and two weeks ago are what are the benefits that we receive both in this life of those of us who are justified, who have been redeemed by God, who are sanctified, and which brings us to this question about the benefits that we receive at death. So as what we do weekly, I'll say the question and then in unison we'll all say the answer together, okay? Question 40. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? Answer, the souls of believers are at death, made perfect in holiness, and do immediately pass into glory, and their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Now, there are a number of passages that point to this doctrinal truth of what happens to believers at, the, at their death. A couple here, we see Paul in Philippians 1.23 talk about the, how he's torn. He says, But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart to be with Christ, for that is much better. So he sort of hints at the idea when he dies, he'll go to be with Christ. And it's expounded more in 2 Corinthians verses 5. Uh, in eight, or, uh, chapter 5, 8, it says, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And so Paul here declares that when I'm absent from my body, when I die, I am present with the Lord. And there's other great theological truths that come to that. Suffice to say that once you pass this life, once you die, you know, in Hebrews, the Hebrew writer said that it's appointed once man to die, and then comes judgment. There's no in-between. Once we die, we are immediately with Christ. And if we are in Christ, if we've been justified, if we've been adopted, uh, then we enter into uh, his glory, and our bodies still remain on earth. And then next week, it'll have the question kind of going into more of what happens to our body at the resurrection. And there's just great truth uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 and also in Revelation that the final resurrection where God resurrects all bodies. And as I said in our Bible study, I'm not sure how that all works out, how he resurrects bodies that may have been cremated. Uh, but in God's glory and power, he resurrects all bodies and we are united with our glorified body uh, at, in the end time. So this is the benefit that we receive as those who are in Christ, that we are made perfect in holiness. We know we're not perfect now, but once we are with Christ, uh, it says we will see him as he is. We will be made perfect and righteous, and we will pass unto glory, and we will be united with Christ, waiting for the last day of our resurrection. Amen? Amen. So we continue to worship hymn number 125, Come Christians Join to Sing. Again, let's stand as we worship together. <clears throat> Come, Christians, join to sing. 
Hallelujah, Amen. Loud praise to Christ our King. Hallelujah, Amen. Let all with heart and voice before His throne rejoice. Praise is His gracious choice. Hallelujah, Amen. Come, lift your heart on high. Hallelujah, Amen. Let praises fill the sky. Hallelujah, Amen. He is our guide and friend. To us he'll condescend. His love shall never end. Hallelujah, Amen. Praise shed our Christ again. Hallelujah, Amen. Life shall not in the strain. Hallelujah, Amen. All heaven's blissful shore, His goodness will adore, singing forevermore. Hallelujah, Amen. If you just turn back to hymn number 91, The Love of God. What a beautiful hymn, this worship together. <clears throat> the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saint and angel song. When years of time shall pass away and earthly thrones, and kingdom fail when men who hear refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call God's love so sure shall still endure all measureless and strong redeeming grace 
to Adam's race, the saints and angels' song. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure, the saints and angels' song. Could we with think the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above, would drain the ocean's dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and Be seated, please. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Twas blind, but now I see Twas grace that taught my heart to fear And grace my fears
Amen to that. Praise the Lord. All right. Well, let's open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 24 today. I'm going to take a little detour from our Sermon on the Mount, and I'm going to address a very important topic. Today I'm going to preach a message to you that in most churches would get the pastor fired. I'd like to address the topic of the egregious sin and crime of murder. Uh, More specifically, I'd like to address the American sanitized version of murder that is commonly called abortion. Please open up your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 24. I'm going to read verse 11 and 12. And the word of the Lord says, Deliver those who are being taken away to death, and those who are staggering to the slaughter. Oh, hold them back. If you say, See, we did not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? Let's pray. Father God, I pray now as I attempt to preach your word, Lord, that you would use me as a vessel for your word to come forth, to go forth and accomplish that which you intended to accomplish. God, I pray as we address this topic, God, that you would give us guidance by your Holy Spirit through the word of God. Father, that you would be glorified and that you would establish justice in our land and that you would be merciful to our country and that your, your judgment will be withheld, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The great reformer Martin Luther once said, if you preach the gospel in all aspects with the exception of the issues which deal specifically with your time, you are not preaching the gospel at all. It's important that the church speaks to issues of the day. Uh, It's important that the church speaks to vital problems of the day and how it intersects with the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it intersects with the church, how it intersects with the Christian's walk. Amen? Well, last year in South Carolina, there were 579 born people who were murdered. 579 tragic lives that were lost. Some of these homicides, justice prevailed. Some of them not, that were still left with no justice. 579 murdered, and that's about average for South Carolina. So that means this year there will be somewhere between probably five and 600 people who are murdered. Well, what if I told you, friends, that I knew the time and place and means by which these 500 people would be murdered this year? What would you do? If you knew where they would be killed, how they would be killed, and by what means they would be killed, what would you do? Well, you would do everything in your power, would you not, to stop that. You would call the authorities, somebody's going to be murdered, here's where it's going to happen, how it's going to happen? Well, what if those authorities said, I can't do anything, it's actually legal for those types of people to be murdered? What would you do then, friends? What would we do if it was legal for those people to be killed? Well, we would still do everything within our power to tell others 
and to do what we can to save those 500 people that are going to be killed. Well, by comparison, last year, 6,279 innocent pre-born babies inside the womb were murdered here in South Carolina, and that was all done legally. And that number does not account for other means of killing preborn babies, such as the morning-after pill and most birth control methods. Birth control methods such as the birth control pill itself, or IUDs, I'm not sure if you knew this, although it prevents fertilization, research shows that it also creates a hostile environment for when that fails and fertilization happens, then there are abortions that can happen due to birth control methods. Of the 6,279 babies that were unjustly killed last year in our state, 73% of those abortions were conducted by use of medicine, pills, 73%. The rest of them were various forms of vacuum aspiration, and I will, I will not describe what that is. You can only imagine what method that looks like. So what do we do with that? What is our duty as Christians? What is our duty as a church? Is this merely a political issue that we shouldn't get involved in? What is the government's duty? Is it truly a woman's right? And how do these two institutions called the church and the state, how do they intersect or do they intersect? Is it just simply separation of church and state as we've always heard, right? Well, that's what I wish to address today. But first, I want to ask, what are your presuppositions coming to the topic of abortion? Because we all have them. Presupposition meaning, what is your biblical, or not even, what is your belief system? What is your worldview and the foundation that you have when it comes to talking about abortion? Because we all have them. And do you have an objective standard of truth by which you measure the issue of abortion. Objective standard of truth simply means is there something outside of what you believe to be true, an autonomous standard such as the Bible, by which you use to measure everything, and are you willing to put your presuppositions aside to look to see what the Word of God has to say about how we are to address this topic of abortion. And in my in my first few words, I mentioned the American sanitized abortion uh, uh, version of murder. That term abortion is a term that's used to sanitize what it truly is. It truly is baby murder. It's the innocent taking of life. So what, is your, what are your presuppositions as a Christian? What are, your, what are your beliefs on what a Christian should not or should do when it comes to the issue of abortion? And are you willing to submit to the word of God today on what he has to say on the issue? I can't pretend that everybody in this room or listening has the same presupposition. So I want to cover uh, some of the basic facts before we get into the text today. Uh, And that's number one is that we must establish abortion as murder, as I just mentioned a couple of minutes ago. Uh, Exodus 20 verse 13, one of the Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt not murder. Now, when God gives that command, many non-believers use that as, you know, so, okay, there you go. You can't have war. You can't kill people. 
You can't believe in the death penalty. But when God says thou shalt not murder, it's the idea is the unjust taking of a life. The taking of an innocent life. That's what the prohibition is. And the penalty that God gave in Exodus 21 for the premeditated murder in verse 12 was life for life. Was that if you took a life, you are to lose your own life. But as John Calvin often said, with every negative command, there's a positive command. The negative command is thou shalt not murder. But with that, there's also a positive command for all of us, and that is to protect life, to protect life. So abortion is the taking of a life. When God says not to murder... It's incumbent on us as a society to protect life. Not only this, God hates the hands that shed innocent blood. Proverbs 6, verse 17. These are one of the seven things that are an abomination to God. Hands that shed innocent blood. God hates it. You and I as believers also should hate it. And we should hate it with a passion. So I like to stop using the word abortion because it's an American sanitized version, and I like to say that it is the innocent, I'm sorry, it's the unjust taking of an innocent life. Abortion is murder. And we hold the truth in our hands. We can prove that abortion is murder, and we ought to speak truth to the culture that abortion is murder. Francis Schaeffer, if you know who that is, he's the great 20th century theologian and Christian philosopher. He once said that every abortion clinic should have a sign on the front door that says, open by permission of the church. Open by permission of the church. Now, I mentioned earlier that we're coming into the Reformation season where God brought the gospel back to life and weakened the power of the Roman Catholic Church and exposed the the false doctrines that they had of salvation uh, by grace plus merit through faith plus works. But let me tell you, over the last 50 years, Protestants have failed in the issue of abortion. And the Roman Catholics have been the ones out there, for the most part, speaking for life. They have been speaking for the sanctity of life much more than the Protestant church to our shame. But we're seeing a change in that. We're seeing, uh, we're seeing reformation in that area, and it's very encouraging. Abortion is the, innocent, is the unjust taking of an innocent life, and in case you didn't, un- and didn't know, life starts at conception. That's all throughout Scripture. Isaiah 49.5, And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb, not a clump of cells, but form me from the womb. Psalm 139.13, For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. Not wove a clump of cells and then I became me at some point. You wove me, it says, in my mother's womb. There's an idea of a continuation of a forming inside the mother's womb, forming the psalmist in the mother's womb. There's not a, a starting point for when life begins. You know, what's, in, what's wonderful about 
science is that as science advances, it only confirms what we know to be true in God's word, do we not? In the area of life, when fertilization happens, and they call it a zygote, I believe, there's a unique DNA that's formed that's distinct from the mom, it's distinct from the dad, and it's distinct from any other life that will ever live in all of the world. And that DNA will determine everything genetically about that person. So life very much begins at conception. Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, says. So your, what are your presuppositions when it comes to life? Because life, according to God's word, doesn't, the value of that life does not depend on size, Stage of development, the ability to comprehend the level of consciousness, the ability to even feel pain, that does not determine the value of life. What determines the value of life? He made them in the image of God. So if a life is a life, it's made in the image of God. And that zygote from conception is worth just as much in the eyes of God as you and me. You know, if you take my youngest, a little over a year old, and my oldest, there's a lot of differences in development, isn't there? Well, it's the same thing. We're constantly developing. From the moment of conception, we're developing into a, a baby, and then we develop into an a infant, and then we develop into a toddler, and then a young child, and we keep developing the value of life is not dependent on the level of development or any of those things. The value of life is determined by the word of God and the word of God alone. We define abortion as murder, a heinous, egregious sin and crime against humanity. Whether it's done out of ignorance or malice forethought, abortion is murder. Now, if statistics bear out, there are more than likely people here, and under the sound of my voice, who have committed abortion. And I want to first, you even got to like reframe the way you talk about abortion, because if you listen to the culture, you'll say people who have been involved in an abortion. Well, how can you be an involved in a murder? Like someone has committed an abortion. I'm okay saying that. They've committed murder. They have, they have allowed somebody to kill their baby. Um, but if statistics are true, there are probably people here today who have committed an abortion in their past, either as a mom or as a dad consenting the killing of their preborn baby. Here's the thing that we must not do. We must not water down that sin. We must call it for what it is and that there is forgiveness with that sin. This is where the more that we speak truth to one another, the more we grow in our love for our gracious and merciful God. Because if you've committed abortion in your past and you water that down, we water it down and say, oh, you know, it's okay, you're confused, you're a victim, and, you know, da, 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 fill in the blank, that waters down the grace of God. But if we understand that no abortion is murder, and if you took place in it, and you're a believer, when you came to Christ, God saved you of that sin. 
God saved you of the sin of consenting for your preborn baby to be killed. Wow, what amazing, merciful, gracious God that we have. And if you're not in Christ and you have committed abortion, you can be forgiven. You can be forgiven of this sin by repentance and faith in Christ and Christ alone. So I want to encourage you, if you are a believer, you're in Christ and you have committed abortion in your past, Romans 8.1, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you truly are born again and you've been redeemed by God, there's no condemnation. God has forgiven you of that egregious sin. So what do we do with that? Abortion's murder, right? We all agree. It's the word of God. God hates it. It's rampant in America. What do we do with that as a church? What do we do with that as Christians? Do we just sit back and, and hate it, but we can't do anything about it? We'll just, we'll just pray about it. We'll just hope for the best. What, what do we do? What does the church do? Well, let's look at our text now. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 11. It says, Deliver those who are being taken away to death, and those who are staggering to the slaughter. Oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? What I want to show you with this text is that Christians are to do everything within their power to save preborn babies from death. Not just hope it ends, not just pray that it ends, but to actually take action in whatever context the Lord has placed you in your life to save preborn babies from the grips of death. Look at the text. There are two commands here. And the proverb writer, as many proverbs, goes from the lesser to the greater. Look what he says in verse 11. Deliver those who are being taken away to death. Death here in the Hebrew is a word for a general sense of dying. Somebody is giving, taken away to die. And the writer says to deliver them. Deliver in the original Hebrew means to snatch, to preserve or to pluck away, to rescue. I I think maybe your version may say rescue those who are being taken away to death, to save We are to save those who are being taken away to death. There's the idea in this command that the person being taken away to death is being taken unjustly, that they're innocent. It it wouldn't make sense if somebody would justly was paying for a crime they committed. It wouldn't make sense to rescue those. There's a sense that this person's innocent, that they're being taken away to die, and we are to rescue or deliver them. So that's the lesser. Then he goes to the greater and says, those who are staggering to the slaughter. Instead of using the word for death, they use the word for slaughter, which means a great shedding of blood. It's only used five times in the Old Testament. It means a great slaughter, a great killing. And that word staggering means slipping into or falling into. We are to Hold them back, it says. And that word in the original Hebrew literally means to restrain. 
hold them back. You have the idea of somebody who's innocent, who's being staggered away, who's stumbling away to be slaughtered with a great slaughter. And the idea is, is to not sit back, is to take swift action and hold them back so that innocent person does not die. This is called interposition. You're interposing. You have the innocent person. You have the unrighteous, wicked person that's bringing that person to death. And you are there and you have an opportunity. God puts you right here to intercede on behalf of the innocent. We see this illustrated in 1 Samuel 19, where you have Saul declaring and making an edict, basically giving a death sentence upon King David. He wasn't king at the time. Uh, but giving a death sentence to David, announcing, it says, both to his son Jonathan and to his servants that David must die. Well, what did Jonathan do for his friend? He was right there. God gave him an opportunity, and he interceded, as we see here in the text in Proverbs 24. He interceded on behalf of David to save him. And he does two things. He first goes to David to warn him and say, look, you need to flee. Then he goes to his dad and says, do not do this evil thing. He intercedes and does all that he can do to save his friend, David. Jonathan does. That is called interposition. And friends, doesn't this fit <clears throat> the second greatest commandment? What's the second greatest commandment? To love your neighbor as yourself. So what would you do, what would you want Jonathan to do if you were David? You would want Jonathan to intercede on your behalf to save your life, right? Absolutely. Well, what if you were being taken away to the slaughter? What if you were innocent and you were being taken away to be unjustly killed? What would you want the church to do? What would you want other Christians to do? What if you were being taken away to be chemically burned to death? What would you want others to do? You would want them to just sit and pray? You absolutely pray. And then maybe God's going to use you to save them. What would you want others to do if you were being taken away to be torn limb by limb? Or to be taken away to be starved to death? What would you want others to do? What would you want the church to do? You wouldn't want them just to sit home and hope the best. You would want them to do everything within their power to save you, wouldn't you? And that is fulfilling the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. And doesn't this give us a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ? If you think about an innocent baby inside the womb who can't speak for themselves, they can't say, hey, don't, please don't kill me. and sins could you out of your own free will ask to be saved no you needed jesus to come save you you needed jesus to come rescue you and deliver you you were being staggered away to the slaughter you were on your road to an eternal damnation and hell and you couldn't do anything about it because you were a slave to sin you were dead in your sins and trespasses you needed someone to intercede for you. And Jesus was that. Jesus was that. He came and he rescued you from an eternity in hell. 
And we ought to do the same for our preborn neighbors. If you look at the text here, 24, Proverbs 24, the writer doesn't give a specific description of who these people were being taken away to death. But if we were to identify who in our culture fits this description, it is obvious that these are our preborn babies. Doesn't it fit the description to the T, being taken away to death, being staggered to the slaughter? James 1.27 puts it this way, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. You want to know the fruit of undefiled religion in the sight of our God? The latter half says to keep yourself unstained from the world. Be holy as I am holy. And the former gives the fruit of taking care of the most needy people in our society, the most downcast people in our society, the ones that need it most, and that's the orphans and the widows. Have you ever thought about the orphans that are fatherless, that are abandoned by their parents? Have you ever thought in the context that your preborn babies, your preborn neighbors, excuse me, are orphans? They've been abandoned by their fathers and mothers. Not only have they been abandoned by their fathers and mothers, their fathers and mothers want to kill them. How much more of an orphan are they? Pure and undefiled religion is to visit the orphans and the widows in their distress. These are the least of these. You know, in Matthew 25, you know, where he's telling them, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. And, and those who, uh, on the opposite, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. Um, and then the one said, when were you thirsty? When were you hungry? And what did he say? He said, when you have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it or not done it unto me. Now, many people miss the part where Jesus says, when you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren. That's the word that's commonly used when it talks about the brethren of Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. When you've done it to the least of these, my brethren. Who are Jesus' brethren? Well, if you believe that preborn babies who are murdered inside the womb are going to heaven, they are your preborn brothers and sisters in Christ. These are the least of these as they are orphans. They're the ones that are least cared for inside our society. You know, inside the womb ought to be the most safest place for someone, but in our culture, it's one of the most dangerous places to be, is inside the womb as a person. Next thing we see in our text is that God will not accept our excuses. Look at verse 12. He says, If you say, see, we didn't know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? God will not accept our excuses. Hey, we didn't know it was this bad, God. I, I couldn't do anything. I had life to live. I had things to do. God weighs our hearts. He will not accept excuses when it comes to the rescuing of our preborn neighbors. You remember Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan. You had the Levite and the priest who walked by and said, 
passed the other way. But you had the good Samaritan who was overwhelmed, it says, with compassion when he saw the man who was beaten by robbers and left for dead. And he, his compassion led to action. And that's what our compassion for the preborn should lead to action. And not just hate what God hates, but hate it to the point where we actually go out and do something. Now, how do we obey this command? It doesn't say exactly how to. So how do we obey this command and rescue or deliver those who are being taken away to death? How do we help rescue our preborn brothers and sisters that are being led away to the slaughter? Well, we've got to get involved. We've got to get involved. And friends, this is not a political issue. I'm not up here to tell you to get involved in politics. This is not a political issue. This is a moral issue. God cares very much, friends, about justice. We are commanded to do all that we can to save preborn babies from the grips of death. So how do you get involved? Many people are overwhelmed on what do I even do? Well, if you think about the sin of abortion, think about it as a river of blood. And I've been Uh, I didn't come up with this. I've heard this from a number of different places. Uh, It's a river of blood, and at the very head of the river are the unjust laws that are enacted in our lands that allow for legalized abortion. And that river flows all the way down to the end to where that water falls, and that is where the death actually takes place inside what they call clinics, or what I call abortion mills. So you got from there, from the head, down to the tail, pick a place and jump in and help to deliver those who are being taken away to the slaughter. Now that doesn't mean everybody is equipped or called to go out and be front line on the abortion uh, mills and on the sidewalks to call out for mothers and fathers to not kill their baby. Not everyone's called to do that, but some are. And if you've never been out and at least prayed for babies and interceded for them at an abortion mill and just go and park your car and pray, I encourage you to do so. You know, I remember when our family first went out to the abortion mill in Charlotte uh, seven years ago, 2015. I'll never forget that day in my life. I was nervous. My palms were sweating. Uh, I was a little fearful. I didn't know what to expect. And we were going out there uh, to pray for babies who were about to die. And we went out to the busiest abortion clinic in the southeast in Charlotte. They kill babies daily. They do nothing but kills. They don't do anything else, any other services. It's not a Planned Parenthood. It's a regional um, facility. And that's all they do is they kill babies five days, six days a week. Excuse me. And so you see women get out of their car and go into this place. And all, all, all I could see, I, it, it broke me. Because abortion, for many Christians, it's out of sight, out of mind. But you go there and you physically see a woman who's carrying a baby walking inside an abortion clinic and you know that baby is not coming out of there alive. That would change your life. That had an impression on me that still, that still impresses upon me when I think about it. But not all of us are called to do that. You might be called somewhere else along the river. There are ministries who help women who change their mind who were going to abort their baby, but then they choose life. And there are ministries to help support that woman who might need support for her, but they might need diapers. 
So God might call you into that area of the ministry. Or God might call you to get involved and speak truth to legislatures so that they would enact laws to end abortion. Wherever it is, I would encourage you to take action, as it says in Proverbs 24:11, to help deliver those being taken away uh, to death. Now, this sort of brings me to what I want to spend the rest of the time here with, to give you some clarity when it comes to the role of the church, the role of the government, and how they intersect, if they even intersect at all. And some people say that they're so far distant that the Christian and the church should never, never get involved in politics, never do anything politically, uh, not even asking your politicians to end abortion. I've heard that from people that have been so dead set against that because there's this mentality that you have to keep the two very separate. So I want to address that. According to Romans 13, the primary role of the government is to be an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. In 1 Peter 2, the primary role of government is to punish evildoers and the praise of those who do right. To be an avenger of wrath on the one who practices evil. I think we all can say amen, right? To punish evildoers. Right? We all would say amen. That's the role of the government. But it begs the question, friends, what is evil? What, what, what do we define as evil? We think that those that are in the position of governing authorities know what evil is, but friends, they do not. They do not. How can we prove that? Look at the laws of our land. Look at the laws of our land. Our culture right now is flipping evil and good on its head. And the politicians, because they love power, they're going along with what the culture is telling them is evil and what they're telling them is good. Because right now our culture would say what I'm speaking right now is evil. Our culture would say if you say a woman can't have an abortion, that is wrong and it's evil. And you're a bigot. Right? That's what's evil to them. So unless you have an objective standard of truth by what evil is and what evil isn't, then we're left to our own devices. We're left to what judges says everybody did right in their own eyes. And that is where our culture is today, my friends. Both the people and the governing authorities are doing what is right in their own eyes. Isaiah 10, 1 says, woe to those who enact evil statutes and those who constantly record unjust decisions. But again, what is evil and what is unjust? There must be a subjective sta- an, ob- an objective standard of truth, which simply means objective, friends, means something that's outside of us, something that is autonomous and is above what we think is right. And for us, the objective standard of truth is the inerrant, all-powerful word of God. That's the role of the government. So this leads us to the next jurisdiction that God set up, and that's the role of the church. There are many roles of the church. 
One is to nurture unity among the brethren, Ephesians 4, 11, and 13. Another is to grow in purity. The role of the church is that we would grow in sanctification together, that we would grow in purity. As I said, that we would grow in unity, but also that we would fulfill the great commission that we would evangelize and take the gospel to the nations. And part of that, my friends, the role of the church is to proclaim the truth of God to the world, to the nations. In 1 Timothy 3.15, says the church is the pillar and the ground of truth. It's the pillar and the ground of truth. The Great Commission, Jesus in Matthew 28 gave the great commission to make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then he says, and teaching them all that I have commanded you. Now, he's not talking about just those words in red letters. He's talking about all of Scripture. Okay, by implication, the church's role is to make disciples and to command and to teach all the things that Jesus has commanded in the Word of God. And that's what we do here from the pulpit. We make disciples and we teach you all the things that are commanded by God to repent and believe the gospel. And then here's how you walk out the Christian life. So even right now, we're teaching you the commands of Scripture on interceding for your preborn neighbors. So you have the role of the government. You have the role of the church. God also gave the jurisdiction of the family. Okay, so you have a jurisdiction inside your home where God granted you authority uh, to do certain things and to make certain decisions for your children that you have the authority to do, not the governing state and not even the church. And so one may cross over to the other in an ungodly way, and it's up to us to identify those times, right? It's like as the church, you know, in Hebrews chapter 13 it says to submit to the leaders of the church. But that doesn't mean that I can come into your house and say, you know what, I really don't like how your house is arranged here. I would like for you to rearrange the house like this so that when I come over, it would be more accommodating to me. Or submit to the leaders of your church. That doesn't mean they can say, hey, you know what, for me to do ministry, deacons, I really need you all to wash my car every week on Mondays. Um, and then, you know, I really need you guys to clean my office out because it's really going to help me with, uh, you know, this and that. No. Or the governing authorities, right? They have their jurisdiction. If they cross over and they encroach upon the family jurisdiction, if they were to come into your house and say, no, nah, you can't have blue couches. They're offensive. Or how about this? Or you know what? You can't teach your kids the Bible inside your home. We consider that hate speech, so you have to stop teaching your kids the Bible inside your home. We're the governing authorities. Romans 13, submit to us. What would you say inside your home? You would say, nope, that's not, this is not your jurisdiction. This is my jurisdiction. I'm going to obey God rather than obey man. So let me ask you a question, friends. When the governing authorities step out of their lane and start infringing upon God-given liberties like life whose job is it to tell them to get back in their lane some people will say well no it's not the church's job the church is to stay inside the church and not get involved politically but friends if we don't tell them who will that's my question if the church doesn't speak truth to the governing authorities 
Who's going to tell them? We think that these lawmakers who claim to know Christ are doing the right thing, that understand what we're teaching here, but I'm telling you, they do not. All right? And nobody told John the Baptist to stay in the church and not speak to the governing authorities. Because you remember what he did with Herod, right? He rebuked Herod for what? For his sin, did he not? Matthew 14, 3 says, For when Herod had arrested John, he bound him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. In the account in Luke, Luke 3.19, it says that John the Baptist reprimanded him, or the word could mean reproved or rebuked, a pagan political leader because of Herodias, his brother's wife. Not only that, in Luke 3.19, he rebuked him for that, but it says he also rebuked him because of all the wicked things which Herod had done. Here you have the prophet of God, who never was in a church anyway. He was always outside the church preaching repentance. But he was speaking to the political leader. He was speaking righteousness. He was bringing the truth of the word of God to bear on a religious leader because he understood that even though he was a pagan believer, pagan political leader, that God had granted him authority just as Jesus told Pilate, no authority can be given to you unless it's been granted by the Father. So he knew that God had placed him there and he was speaking truth to Herod. What was the result of that? Well, did you know, I truly believe that Herod almost got saved. Herod almost got saved. How, how can I say that? Mark 6.20. It says, For Herod was afraid of John. So this was after all that had happened, right? For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. I believe that text tells us that Herod came really close to repenting of his sin. He had this prophet of God speaking truth that nobody else would speak to him because they were not courageous. He spoke the word of God to him and said and rebuked him for his unrighteous living. And now he's fearful of him. He knew he was righteous. He knew something was different. Yet we know the end of the story. He still had John the Baptist beheaded. See, I believe it's the Christian's duty, it's the church's duty to speak truth to our governing authorities, and this ties directly in to the slaughter of the preborn. Turn to Psalm 182. It's a few pages before the Proverbs text. Psalm, sorry, Psalm 82. Excuse me, Psalm 82. Starting in verse 1. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. Here in this text, it says God takes his stand and he judges in the midst of the church. Mm -mm. He judges in the midst of the 
rulers. That word, when it says he judges in the Hebrew, the type of word it is is, a, is an active, it's in the imperfect type, which means it's continuous. It's active. God wasn't judging the rulers back then and the nations back then, and now he's just, don't worry about the rulers and just and, uh, you know, righteousness and justice. Don't worry about all that. No, he's continually judging. He's continually judging the rulers, calling out to them, how long will you judge unjustly? You know, some months ago in our Bible study, we were going through the minor prophets. And one of the major themes, it just, if you study the minor prophets, you will see, aside from the rebukes of the apostasy, worshiping false gods and that sort of thing, one of the major themes of the minor prophets is God rebuking and prophesying against pagan nations. For what? For what? For not establishing justice, for oppressing the downcast, for their iniquitous decrees. God cares very much about justice, my friends. God cares very much about justice. Here in the text in Psalm 82, we have the message going forth that God is judging the nations. He's speaking to the nations. We must understand that the message to the rulers of this world has not changed. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this message here in Psalm 82 applies to the rulers today? Do you believe this applies today? Uh, I hope you say yes. Then my question, friends, is, Who's going to tell them? Because we had the prophets who would speak for God. Thus saith the Lord. Who do we have today? We have the written word of God. But friends, someone's got to tell them. You know, weeks ago there was a, a hearing down in Columbia where a, a committee was considering drafting an abortion ban bill. And they allowed public testimony where you could sign up and give three minutes to speak for or against or whatever it is that you want to speak for. Uh, it went on for about five or six hours. 120 people spoke, and you had to wait in line in the, in the morning to get in line to speak. Uh, and it was such a blessing to see the church that's helping us with this church plant, Covenant Baptist. They had speaker after speaker after speaker after speaker. And by the end of it, Everybody would sigh when they heard, I'm so-and-so from Covenant Baptist Church. I'm so-and-so from Covenant Baptist Church. All the pro-aborts would snicker every time they heard Covenant Baptist Church because they knew what was coming. But person after person, men and women, took the word of God and spoke with love but with truth that you're responsible to establish justice. You're responsible to vindicate the weak and fatherless, Psalm 182.3. Those legislators have never, ever heard something like that. And we know that the word of God will not return void, right? God will use that to either soften their hearts, the 15 lawmakers, or many of them, from what I heard, it hardened some of their hearts. It hardened some of their hearts. But God uses that to their own condemnation. They're responsible. So, friends, we need people who are courageous, who are willing to speak truth outside the four walls of the church. The church has lost its prophetic voice in our culture to speak the truths 
to the culture. And many people forget, why do we even have a nation? We have the Revolutionary War, right? Which many people say that it was America revolting and rebelling against England. But friends, if you study history, it was actually England rebelling against the agreements that they had with the continent, uh, the, the, um, the 13 colonies. It was the actual king and parliament who were rebelling. And the colonies were simply defending themselves and the God-given liberties that God had granted on them. And I say all that because... Good historians, even secular historians, will say that the Revolutionary War was led by this pulpit right here, by Reformed Presbyterians who would preach the Word of God and would rebuke the tyranny of England. And that's what led us to the Declaration of Independence, was the Word of God coming to bear upon the culture. The church must speak to the state and proclaim what the word of God says and what legislators are required to do. Amos 5.15, they were required to establish justice in the gate. Christians must only support laws of this land that are true, just laws. So when it comes to rescuing the preborn. The only laws that we can support are ones that provide justice and equal protection for all life from conception. You know, if you remember a year and a half ago when the heartbeat bill was passed, many churches celebrated that. And if it ever saves a single life, I'll praise God for it. But according to the word of God, that law says that it's okay to kill your baby as long as an abortionist cannot find a heartbeat. Is that a just law according to the word of God? Now again, if it saves lives, we praise God it saves lives, but we must hold to the objective standard of the word of God and hold to his truths and tell our lawmakers who represent you and me that they are to enact just laws. You know, in Exodus where we're given, thou shalt not murder, And in Exodus 21, we're given the penalty for murder. We all know the scripture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, right? You know that text. Do you know what's right before that text? Go back and read it. For the sake of time, I won't turn there. But Exodus 21, that eye for eye, life for life, tooth for tooth, that comes right after the prohibition uh, or the ordinance God gives that if a woman who's carrying a baby is struck and that baby suffers injury inside the womb, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. If that baby dies inside the womb because that baby's made in the image of God, the same penalty to somebody who kills a born person applied to somebody who killed a preborn baby. And so that's what we must stand for. The laws of this land must protect you and I who are outside the womb and those same laws must protect babies who are inside the womb. As believers, we cannot be pragmatic and just hope for the best. We must hold truth, hold true to the objective truth of the word of God. I want to conclude by introducing you to a man by the name of William Wilberforce. He was born in 1759 in England, 
during a period of slavery in England. And this slavery had came to such an egregious point where on average, England was stealing up to 50,000 Africans a year and shipping them back to England, to Great Britain, to be sold into chattel slavery. 50,000 a year. Man-stealing. It's outlawed in Exodus 21, 16. We're to not steal people as property. So William Wilberforce, that's the context where he was born. He was a young man elected to Parliament in 1780, but by his own admittance, he was in it for the glitz and the glamour, for the power. Uh, He was in it for selfish ambition, selfish motivation. Four years later, uh, through a relationship with an Anglican clergyman by the name of Isaac Milner, and after they were going through the Greek New Testament, Wilberforce came to Christ. He got born again, and we praise God for that. He wrote, quote, A sense of my great sinfulness in having so long neglected the unspeakable mercies of my God and Savior. As he began to grow in his knowledge of Jesus Christ, as he began to grow in his Christian worldview and embracing, looking through the world and looking through culture with the lens of the Scripture, he was overwhelmed with the egregious sin of slavery. He could not help He could not help to be overwhelmed by this atrocity of man-stealing, which also had a penalty of death in the Old Testament. He said this, quote, So enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable did the slave trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I from this time determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. Wilberforce used the context and the life that God gave him to do everything he could to abolish slavery. Now, I understand we're not all called to go into politics, but the point is, is that he was overwhelmed with it to the point he had compassion for his African brethren to such a point that he acted upon it and he did everything that he could do to bring its end. And in this process, he was vilified, he was threatened. He introduced bills to abolish slavery, resolutions to end slavery, multiple times over 14 years. And they all failed. They were blocked. There was a lack of political will. There was political maneuvers to block his bills from being able to be debated and voted on. It got so bad that his friends feared for his life with the threats and the slander. But praise God, his efforts paid off. In 1807, Parliament finally enacted a law that would abolish the slave trade. Although it had yet, it it didn't set slaves free, it just abolished the slave trade. And it was some years later... In 1833, which was three days before Wilberforce's death, that the law was passed to free all slaves in the British Empire. Brothers and sisters, William Wilberforce's Christian worldview consumed his passion for his African neighbors. He would not pass by the other way, like the Levite 
and the priest did in the Good Samaritan. But he poured out his life to play a part in the abolition of slavery. It wasn't just him. It was a lot of people working to bring that crime to an end. But God used him. So my question to you today is, will you turn the other way? Or will you be like Wilberforce and use the context and the life that God has given you for the glory of God and do all that you can do in the context and the time and the resources that you have to see that abortion is abolished in our state and in our country? And may the Lord grant us repentance. And I ask that you repent with me. If you've been apathetic towards this, repent with me. May the Lord grant us repentance and may he, may he afford us fortitude for the fight. This is a spiritual battle. You cannot do this in your own strength. In any capacity. Whatever part you want to get involved with. Whether it's the front end or the tail end. It is a spiritual battle. And you might get called names. You might be vilified as well. You might be slandered. You can't do it in the flesh. It is a spiritual battle that takes prayer. It takes spiritual armor. But may God give us that spiritual fortitude to fight. But may he also give us peace in knowing that ultimately it's not up to you and I. Although we're responsible, God is sovereign and he is up to the results. It's his results. He's responsible for the results. And finally, brethren, may we enter heaven with preborn babies thanking us that we did not pass by the other way, but that we love them enough to stand and to speak for their justice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that you have granted us all that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of of him found in your word, that you have granted us all that we need. Father, I pray that you would help us to have a compassion, Lord, for the unborn, for our preborn neighbors. Father, that we would not only have compassion for them, but that it would be compassion to the point that we do something, that we take action to rescue them. Father, as you have rescued us, as you came down, Father, while we were yet enemies, you rescued us. You died for our sins. Father, may we have the same compassion that you have towards us, towards others, that we would speak for our preborn neighbors, that we would get past the the nervousness to speak for them, get past the the fear of man that we would be reviled or spoken ill of or whatever. Whatever those fears are, God, help us, Father, to grow in our fear for you, in our confidence in you, so that, God, we would be bold and courageous to speak for life, we would speak for truth. God, I pray that you would give us wisdom, God, on how to get involved, where to get involved, what to do, what not to do. And God, that it would not become an idol, that it would not become a work where we think we would merit more favor, God, but that we would do it out of love for you because you have saved us and rescued us. 
We would do it out of love for our neighbors. And God, we pray that you'd be glorified. And we pray that you would bring an end to legalized abortion in our state and in our country. And that a justice would be established. And the righteous would rule this land. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hymn number 379. Stand together and worship. I'd rather have Jesus. Jesus, 
than anything this world affords today. I want to thank you for worshiping with us today. It was an honor and pleasure to worship uh, with the brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, our uh, worshiping our Lord of Lords and our King of Kings. And I pray that uh, you can, from your heart, truly say that you'd rather have Jesus than anything uh, this world can afford to offer because he's worth more uh, than all of this that we see in this temporal life. And I pray that that is true to you today. And if it's not, uh, you can repent and come to Christ. And he is all that you need in this life and in the next. Amen. Uh, Well, as each Sunday, each Lord's Day, we have a brief time of fellowship in our Rogers room. We'd like to invite you down there uh, for fellowship. And I also want to just encourage us as we uh, are growing, which is really neat to see the new folks and the new families that are that are coming. And uh, I want to encourage us that part of our growing in our love for our Lord and our love for each other is to live life together, is to be involved in one another's lives. And so as you're speaking to one another, uh, you know, make an effort to connect with each other outside of church uh, so that we can grow again in our relationships, that we can learn to encourage each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and practice hospitality. Uh, and we'll try to have, uh, as we try to have opportunities for us to fellowship together, I think as a growing church uh, plant, uh, we need to make sure that we're making time for that. Uh, amen. Also want to ask that you pray for me. Uh, This week is going to be very busy. As you saw with the events, I'm going to be all over the state uh, traveling. uh, And as of right now, I have no uh, means to do so because my car broke down today in Columbia. Uh, So it's being towed up here. So hopefully it'll get fixed real quick. But, uh, you know, the Lord doesn't need me. Uh, He can use the other speakers that are speaking at these events if I don't make it. But just pray that the Lord's will be done. Um, And, you know, if it's his will for me to go. If I, Ali said it, you just drive the big old 15 passenger van across the state. So, uh, but anyway, just pray for me on that. So, First uh, Thessalonians 5, verse 23 is our benediction. It says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved completely without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise the Lord. Have a good week, and we'll see you next time. Amen.